and uh, turn to the book of First Samuel. First Samuel. Let's stand. We're not going to read a lot, um, and if you notice the names in these three verses, the person who's reading will be thinking this is enough. But uh, this is the nature of the Old Testament. First Samuel, chapter one, beginning at verse one through verse uh, verse two. Okay. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning of beginning our time in this wonderful book of 1 Samuel. Allow this morning to be an opportunity for us to become acquainted with the Old Testament, and in particular the, the narrative section of the Old Testament. And uh, Lord, would it prepare us for a journey that you have for us in this book uh, to guide us and direct us, not only um, in, in, our, in understanding how we are to live and but also, Lord, to have a greater understanding of you and your purposes and um, who your son Jesus Christ is ultimately. And Lord, just, uh, just strengthen us today and use this time, Lord, to accomplish your purposes in our lives, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, the Bible that God has graciously given us um, is a very colorful book. And by, me, by colorful, I mean that there are just a, a lot of different genres in this book. There are stories that reveal for us vibrant characters, the innocent, the villains, twisting plots, heroes. Then there's poetry that reflects on those stories where God reveals himself or when man is struggling with God in his circumstances. And uh, the, the poetical books are just really heartfelt. You want to look into someone's soul, open up the Psalms and, and, and listen to David or um, Agur or other people who are writing those Psalms and you connect so, uh, so incredibly with what they're wrestling with. Then there are songs of praise for his mighty work, his provision, his faithfulness. There's prophecy that confronts nations primarily um, but also gives us a word about what is yet to come. And, and oftentimes that word is in figurative language that we have to kind of think through. Then there are letters from the hearts of apostles um, to, written to encourage churches or individuals and directing them how to live for Christ. Or they're confronting churches and warning them of false teaching and false teachers, and yet these letters have a, a different kind of genre to them. Then there's the Gospels, and the Gospels really are a combination of a variety of genres. There's stories, there's parables, there's discourse, and um, there's even poetic stuff, and there's prophetic stuff that's going on in the, in the Gospels too. And, and what's really important for us is that, first of all, we recognize that the Bible is colorful like that, and yet at the same time, these, these various genres help us to see God's purposes in a multi, uh, multitude of different ways. Now, the reality is most churches um, and pastors, I would say, preach 
from the epistles. And especially pastors that would be uh, of churches that would be like-minded to us. There's a tendency to want to make sure that we are laying down good, solid theology. And, and then we have to understand there is a, there's a need for that because it is in the epistles where the theology is fleshed out of what has already been laid out for us in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and even in the book of Acts. So it's not wrong. But we can't study an Old Testament narrative like we study an epistle or a letter. We have to go about it a little differently. And we spent the better part of the last couple of years studying in the Gospel of John and the letter to the Ephesian church. We've had a few stops along the way in other places, even in the Old Testament. But today, we're beginning this new journey in this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And it, it kind of reminded me of the first time I went to Disneyland and uh, was encouraged to go on Space Mountain. And if you have ever been to Disneyland and you were in that place, you know maybe what I'm talking about. First of all, um, anticipating what was gonna go on in there, uh, as a little child, um, it was new to me. I'd never been on a roller coaster before. Um, the line to the ride was just as much as I could handle. I mean, you know, it was over an hour and hot and feeling dehydrated, although I didn't even know what that was at that point in time finally got into the ride and got into this little train thing that kind of went up this hill, click, 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 but it's all dark. You can't see where you're going. You have no idea except for the sound of the click, 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 and the leveling out that something's going to happen, but I don't know what, and I don't know where, and I don't know if I'm going to turn left, or I'm going to turn right, or I'm going to drop, or I'm going to go up, or what's going to happen? And there is a sense in which, when we come to the Old Testament, <laughs> There's a sense in which we're in this train and we're kind of riding up click, 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 and we're like, okay, I know this is God's word, but I really am not sure where this is going to go. I'm kind of just wandering all over and, all right, I'm on for the ride, but I, I really don't have a direction. I may have a big picture idea. We know that God always wins, right? But, um, but what is actually going to happen here? And you know, when we went through John's gospel, I had an idea of what was going to happen. I read through it before. I knew what the key passage was. But honestly, if I were to preach it again, I would have a better understanding because we've been through it already. And I think God used that journey to help mold me in my understanding of, of why I should believe in Jesus Christ. It's all about belief. It's all about the evidence that is there. And as we've just recently finished up the book of Ephesians, as I started out, I was like, okay, this is good. I was a little actually apprehensive as a, as a pastor to go through Ephesians because of its, its weightiness, and, and yet I, I knew it was what we needed to do. And having gone through Ephesians, looking back at it, I'm just like, wow, God, thank you. Thank you for, for what you taught me and how you showed me this unfolding part of your, of your theology and plan for the church and how you've drawn us to yourself and how you've, re, you've created us and, and now we can walk in light of that and we have this armor and, and having, having all that kind of uh, uh, laid out together has been a wonderful experience for me personally and I, I trust it has been for you as a church. But now we go to 1 Samuel. And we may be sitting in that car, like I said, clicking our way to the top and just wondering what's going to happen. Now, we know that it's going to be rich. Why? Because it's the Word of God. Um, we, we also um, uh, may realize that God is going to teach us, but we just don't know exactly how. I mean, not 
maybe ready for what is, uh, what is facing us. And so we're also asking ourselves a question. If you've even heard me announce that we're going to be doing first time, you may have taken some time to begin to read. And you may be asking yourself the question, who is this woman Hannah praying this prayer that we're going to find in a, in a chapter or so? What are we to make of Hophni and Phinehas? First of all, don't choose that as a name for your children, okay? Um, there are other things we could say. What is this crazy deal with the ark of the Lord? I mean, it's going all over places, and people are bursting out in boils and things like that, and tumors, and what's up with that, you know? Um, why, why was this man Saul so big? I mean, is that significant? Um, why is there so much war going on? That's one, of the, that's one of the struggles a lot of people have who have not been to the, the Old Testament and studied it in kind of a comprehensive way. They're like, man, it's just, everyone's getting killed, and there's battles, and there's death, and why is this happening? And it all seems like God wants this stuff. Um, and then why is there such a conflict between David and Saul? And we could go on as we think about First and Second Samuel, thinking through kind of strange questions. So God is, is going to take us on a journey that is going to help us understand um, some things that he wants us to see about how we live, how we worship, whom we worship, how we frame and understand whom we worship, and why it's important to see things from God's perspective and not from man's perspective. So this morning, I want to begin by grounding us um, a little in our understanding as to how we approach the Old Testament. So we're going to begin uh, by understanding, hopefully, how we approach Old Testament narrative or Old Testament history. And to do that, I am leaning on um, an article written by David Murray. You may know who he is, but he lists five characteristics, essential characteristics of Old Testament history. And I just want to walk through these with you as we begin this morning so that as you begin to open your Bible and read, um, you can be thinking about these characteristics, right? First of all, um, we want to say that Old Testament history is true history. Okay? Israel's neighbors um, may have expressed their beliefs through elaborate myths. But when we go to the people of God in the Old Testament narratives, what we find there are not myths, but real events in real time involving real people and a real God. Right? So this is, this is not like you know, Peter Pan and Neverland stuff. This is actual, true history. And not only do you have the record of the Bible to support that true history, you also have parallel histories that reinforce that these things are true. I mean, you can go to the places where some of this stuff has taken place, and you can find remnants of that particular culture, or you can find buildings, or you can find archaeological digs. This is true history, Okay? And it's important for us to understand that. Because if we don't understand the significance of the fact that Old Testament narrative is true history, we'll, we'll lose uh, or, or give up the truthfulness of the biblical record. And when we give that up, um, we give up the truth. And we also lose our Christian faith because it's founded on, on God's acts in human history. Just like the resurrection is historically verified so the Old Testament stories are historically true. All right, so we can, we can confidently approach the Old Testament uh, narrative sections with unshakable faith, confident that what is being revealed is actually historically true. All right, that's the first thing we need to understand. Secondly, 
we need to understand that Old Testament history is selective history, right? Now, they may deny it, but every historian has an agenda. Every historian is laying out bits and pieces of that history because he's trying to communicate a story to a particular group of people. And he's painting a picture of that story. And so it's really important that we recognize that that is not only what happens in the secular world, but that is what happens even in the biblical record. The writer of this Old Testament history has an agenda for the, the audience, that would be Israel, looking back at their history. All right? And so they selectively choose various stories and tell us the bits and pieces that are important from their perspective uh, to record. And of course, God is behind all of that, breathing it out through their individual personal um, um, record. Right? He is there breathing out the word of God through these particular authors. So when we read Old Testament history, we must be asking ourselves the question, what did the, or why did the author select these events and his particular angle on those events? We call that his authorial intent. And so there is always an authorial intent of a book that is written in the Bible. It's not just something that just kind of popped out out of nowhere. There was someone that wrote it down who had an agenda, who was trying to teach the people something. And we got to get aware of what that authorial intent is so that we can have a proper understanding of, of how to approach it and to interpret what he is recording for us. Third thing is this, Old Testament history is relevant history. Right? And because the, of the vast difference between the Old Testament and our modern world, many will conclude that the Old Testament is pretty irrelevant to what we're going through today. Right? They didn't have iPhones back in Moses' day. Right? And if he did, it would probably be a little different, right? Because he could actually take a picture of you know, all the plagues and put it on Pinterest and all that kind of stuff. And if you ever happened to go to, you know, to Egypt yourself, you could go there and check on it before you went so you could enjoy the plagues too. Right? I mean, just, it's a different world, completely different world. And the written record was significant for that world. And the events that took place may seem distant to us, but there was God working through his people. And in fact, this, this Old Testament is not only relevant, it's very relevant. The problem is we can't just go from the Old Testament to today without actually understanding um, the, the truthfulness of that historical record. Secondly, the authorial intent of that. In other words, we have to go back to, in this case, Samuel, understand the context of Samuel, understand why it was written and, and for what purpose and what was going on in those stories before we can even attempt to bring it here to 2014. If we don't do that, we end up moralizing or spiritualizing passages, saying things like, you know, David fought giants, you're going to fight giants. How do you want to fight a giant? Well, okay, I've I got to do it with a sling. Okay, great. Find a sling. Do that too. That's not what the story's about. All right, it's the events. But we end up spiritualizing and moralizing these stories rather than seeing the author's intent in revealing something far more significant than how David beat Goliath. Okay? There's God at work in that story, and it's actually an amazing story. All right? 
Um, so we're asking ourselves questions like this. Why has the author and God chosen to include this story or these events in this record of history? What is the big message that the author is teaching his audience? And what, therefore, is the message that he is teaching us? The fourth principle would be this. Old Testament history is purposeful history. Many history books simply relate the what, the when, the where, and the how of that event. Not many attempt to answer the why, and sometimes those that do attempt to answer the why um, have conclusions that are somewhat laughable. In contrast to that, biblical history has a clear purpose. It is a progressive revelation of the mind and the heart of God for the benefit of needy sinners. So when God was breathing out his word through these authors in the Old Testament, he had you and me in mind as people who would be reading this and growing in your relationship with God through this. There was a purpose there. God is the subject and the hero of the Bible. So when we read the Old Testament narrative, we're gonna be asking three questions. What does this story reveal about God? That should always be a question. So as you're reading, ask yourself, what does this story reveal, reveal about God? Secondly, how is this intended to help needy sinners? Third, what role does this story play in the larger and longer biblical story? Because what you're reading is simply part of the story, right? It's just one snapshot a time in history that is connected to this big line of God's providence through the years. And it's important. It's an important story by itself, but it's not an important by itself forgetting everything else. What makes it important is that it is connected to everything else and therefore has meaning and connected meaning to everything else also. Okay? So the characters in the story, they are important, but they are secondary to God's overarching purpose through the word of God. The last principle here is this. Old Testament history is redemptive history. Okay? God actively directs human history for the purpose of redeeming sinners to himself. So the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Old Testament to record what, what would graciously reveal that redemptive purpose and even the Redeemer himself. So biblical history, then, is not just facts that teach us theology. These historical facts serve to bring in God's children, to bring in his elect. They are the means by which God is proclaiming who he is, and by virtue of proclaiming who he is, he is drawing his people to himself. And that's a great motive for us to study this section of scripture. And so we're going to land in 1 Samuel. Now the question is, why 1 Samuel? All right, you're probably asking yourself, why 1 Samuel? Why not Genesis? Everyone begins in Genesis, right? Why 1 Samuel? Well, part of the reason for 1 Samuel is, number one, because it is in scripture. And honestly, any portion of scripture is good for us to study, right? It's God's word. Um, it's not any less important or more important than any other passages of Scripture. It's actually not right for us to say, you know, this verse is really important. In fact, it's more important. No, they all are important. They may have more significance. They may actually give a, a greater truth. But God's Word is 
God's word and we need to be studying it. But secondly, because in 1 Samuel, we find the heart of understanding the Old Testament concept of king. What does it mean to be a king? And here's a bunch of questions that um, we're gonna be looking to answer. Who is your king? Who will be your king? What will your king look like? How will your king rule? How will your king lead? How will you follow your king? And how do you determine the parameters of how you come to the conclusion of how will you follow your king? See, ultimately your king is the one that you bow down to. He or she is the one whom you worship. This king is the one who is leading your life, influencing your thinking, dialoguing with you in your mind. So you might say, well, you know, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I read this person. Well, how is this person influencing your thinking? And this person's thinking and conclusions may, in your heart, be trumping what God has revealed in his word. And so well, the question for us is always gonna be, who is our king? Is it Christ or is it someone else? And just because we name the name of Christ doesn't necessarily mean that he actually in our hearts is the one that is sitting on the throne. He is sitting on the throne, but in our hearts he may have been pushed aside because we have someone else sitting there or some other peoples sitting there, some other ideologies, some other voices that we value that somehow have usurped God and his thinking and his purposes. So how will you fashion or shape your king? If God fashions and shapes a king for you, will you worship and bow down to him or will you reject him? And that begs the question, God has fashioned a king for you. His name is Jesus. Will you listen to what he says? Will you bow down to him? Will you worship him? Or would you rather fashion a king of your own making? So 1 Samuel is all about the children of Israel, children of God, looking for a king. And that's what we're gonna focus in on as we move through um, this series. So this morning now, I wanna jump now into what I'm calling the, the, the actual text. That was just all introduction, okay? Um, now the actual text, the broader context, okay? The broader context. So we're gonna, we're gonna kinda try our best to lay a foundation and paint a picture of the broader context that leads up to 1 Samuel 1, 1 and 2. So there's gonna be some Old Testament history we're gonna have to bring to bear. 1 Samuel begins uh, a little over 3,000 years ago. Um, the date was about 1050 B.C. Um, and before Samuel, God had been at work beginning and establishing the Hebrew peoples into a nation. So we want to begin talking about a man by the name of Abraham. Okay, Abraham. Abraham, um, of course, was promised by God, was blessed by God, and he, he promised him that he would give him land, that he would um, make him a nation, and that through him the world would be blessed. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. Let me read that to you. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring 
be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And of course, that, if you remember, that takes you all the way to Hebrews 11, and actually even to the book of Romans, where, where Moses is, is exercising faith in what God has promised. And God had promised to, to bless him and to give him this land. And so Abraham was a, was a leader of the people, and yet, although he was a leader of the people, he was a frail, sinful leader of the people. Okay, it's good to know that. And then the next major leader that comes along is a guy by the name of Moses. Now you probably know Moses because you saw the film The Ten Commandments, if nothing else, right? Um, Charlton Heston, um, probably a good Moses. Um, but centuries later, when, um, uh, when Moses comes on the scene, uh, he is through a number of incredible circumstances, raised up in Egypt, because now the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt, he is raised up in Egypt in the Pharaoh's household. He ends up doing something um, that caused him to be, well, he just exiled himself because he killed another Hebrew, and, um, or say another, another Egyptian, and takes off. And during that time in the wilderness, he has this encounter with God. And in that encounter, God tells him, I want you to go and I want, you to, um, I want you to go confront Pharaoh. So there's already a relationship there. Again, think about the sovereignty of God working all this out. But Moses was a great leader of the people. He led them out of Egypt, having gone through all the different plagues. And having gone through those plagues, they stand at this Red Sea. And God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea. They go through. They enter into the wilderness, hoping to get to the promised land. Of course, their sin holds them back from getting into the promised land. And so they wander for 40 years, and Moses during that time is the leader. Now Moses was a good character, but he was also a frail, sinful character, right? Um, he, he went up to the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments, came down, and he was angry how the people were behaving. I would be angry about how the people were behaving, all right? They were worshiping another idol that they created for themselves, attributing their flight from Egypt to this idol, and he takes the commandments and he throws them down and they break. So he goes back up, gets some more, and this goes on. Then there's a time when the children of, of Israel, the spies are sent out, and, um, and uh, you say, you know, ten were bad and two were good, and they came back with Joshua and Caleb that were the, the good guys, and pretty much everyone else was not allowed to go into the promised land. Even Moses was held back from doing that because of his anger at hitting the rock rather than following God's instructions. He was a good leader, but he was a frail leader of the people. And so Moses, having um, given the discourse we call Deuteronomy before they go into the promised land, transitions leadership to a man by the name of Joshua. And Joshua was, was quite, quite the king in the sense. He was quite the leader. He was quite the warrior. And he led the people of Israel into the promised land and followed God's instructions um, and not always obediently and not always without but with difficulty and regret, but yet he was a good leader. And for the most part, they entered the, the land of Canaan and wiped out um, or drove out the descendants that were there that were um, their enemies. But there was still a remnant that were, that were, that were left. And so this, this man Joshua um, was greatly used to, to finish the job, so to speak, but it wasn't quite done. When he dies... Um, uh, you know, the Israelites have most of the land, and yet there's still a remnant of the people that were already there. 
and this is the time of the judges. And what happens during the time of the judges is the, the people now are commanded by God to go and finish the job, but instead of finishing the job, guess what they do? They end up going to those people, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to come get you, and it's like, hey, you're cute, you know, and they end up intermarrying and behaving and acting like them and intermingling with them. And what ends up happening is that those people uh, end up uh, suppressing them and oppressing them and they're under their bondage. And there was this sin cycle then that took place during the time of the judges. It's, it's quite a read. And I tell you what, of all the books in, in the Old Testament, this is, the, this is probably the bloodiest, most violence that you're gonna find in here. But there was this cycle where the, the Israelites would would intermarry and worship the idols of these other peoples that were not followers of Yahweh, um, and God would then bring this, this time of judgment on them, this time of oppression, and the people then through that time of oppression would cry out to God for a deliverer. Sometimes they would repent, they'd just cry out, and God by his grace would bring them a deliverer who was also called a judge. And that judge would come and rescue the people. And having rescued the people, there was a season of peace. There was a season of restoration. There was a season of putting away false gods. There was a season of, of reconciling relationships with, with uh, uh, people they shouldn't have relationships with and, and, and changing that. And then there was this consistent time. But then as time went on, people would start to drift back to those people that they weren't supposed to be with and worshiping those gods they shouldn't be with. And this all happened again, intermarrying, intermingling, worshiping false gods. And then God would bring oppression as a form of discipline by those people. And then again, this happened over and over. And the story of the, of the judges is an incredibly sad story. And what's, what's even sadder about this story is how this story ends, at least in the book of Judges. So take your Bibles and look in the book of Judges, and I want you to look at the last verse, okay? So we're starting with Abraham, not perfect. We're, we're moving down to Moses, not perfect, but a leader. We're looking at Joshua, great leader, but not perfect. And then we're looking at the Judges, and that's Sam, uh, Samson, that's, that's Gideon, um, that's uh, Othniel and Ehud, it's Deborah, it's Barak, there's others. But, uh, you know, the people eventually abandoned their judges, their deliverers, and, and they wanted to pursue their own hearts. And so this is what it says, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not a good picture of the condition of a nation, is it? In fact... I don't think you would want to live in this kind of anarchistic society. I mean, there's no order. Because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, that's what you think, but I think, you know, that's a nice car you have. That car's mine. Well, why is that car yours? Because I want it to be. I mean, just think the chaos of life. Now, this may be, may be speaking more just to the, the issues of morality and you know, just living and worshiping whomever they want, but this was a, a low time uh, during the, the, the history of Israel. So there's great moral apostasy. They had abandoned the guiding hand of God and were now only doing what their hearts desired. There was, this was a time when the nation was adrift without a moral conscience. Um, and... Uh, they, they weren't even 
listening to any counsel. So, that, so their, their conscience, their, their internal conscience was seared and their external uh, counsel was gone because they weren't listening to what God had to say anymore. And so they were adrift doing whatever they wanted to do and he, con- he concludes there by saying everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why? In those days there was no king in Israel. Interesting, isn't it? Without a king, this is how people behave. All right? Now, there's a crisis of leadership going on in Israel. Who would be their king? Who would rally them together? Who would be the one that would, that would bring order out of this chaos? And so we begin at 1 Samuel chapter 1. What we just looked at was the broader context. Now let's look at the immediate crisis. And so we're waiting for an answer here, and this answer begins at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathan Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrahite. Some more names for you uh, expecting moms to consider there, okay? Um, and, and trust me, they will be the only child with that name, okay? He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Aren't you excited about the good news? I mean, Israel has no king, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And there's a guy by the name of Elkanah, and he's living in Ephraim, and he has a couple of wives. Woohoo! Yeah! Boy, I see that coming. This is great. Woo! Full of hope, full of satisfaction. I've got it all figured out. Now, thank you, Lord, for that counsel. Now, in reality, it doesn't do much for us at all. In fact, quite often, we would just read through that and try and get to some story that's in the book. But the writer is purposely telling us something here that we need to pay attention to. There is an immediate crisis, and God is going to answer this immediate crisis. Now, this is God's word, and it's every part um, as important as any other section of God's word. And this man in this hill country of Ephraim is important, along with what's going on with his wife. So let's look at Elkanah's credentials, okay? Number one, his town. What do we know about his town? There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, we'll call it Rama for short, okay, of the hill country of Ephraim. Now there's really nothing significant or important about Rama. It's just an obscure town. Um, now it will become significant, but at this point in time, it's just a town up in the mountains somewhere. No big deal. Um, then let's think about his family. Things only get better. Whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. Now I'm here to tell you, um, up until this point in time, these guys are not, <laughs> they're not key players in the Old Testament story. All right? This means nothing of significance to us. In the sense of, aha, see, he was the son of this guy. 
So there's nothing really striking about this list of men. The point is that this man, Elkanah, was living in an obscure town among obscure people. We would say today, he was a nobody. Or maybe we'd say, he's a hillbilly, right? Sure, he was an Ephrathite, which is the region which we find the town of Bethlehem. Remember the Bethlehem of Ephrata? Okay, same region. But that is going way far ahead in the story. But right now, just an obscure place with an obscure man. Now, Elkanah was an insignificant nobody, like I said, living in an insignificant place. And he has two wives. So let's think about his wives for a minute here. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So he had these two wives. Hannah, his first wife, we know that just by the structure of this passage, um, where it says the name of the one was Hannah, and then the other name, or the name of the other, Penina, and that just, the other, the other second one in the Hebrew, that's what it means, okay? So Hannah was the first, Penina was the second. So you can almost imagine what, what happened in this kind of a mundane situation. But I just, let me just back up a little bit. In the Old Testament, during that, during that, that, that era, there was, there was not necessarily commanded to have two wives, but um, it was one of those things that did happen, um, and uh, so what happened, as we can think through this, is that Hannah was not able to bear children, and so Elkanah took to himself another wife to have children, um, and she had plenty of them. In fact, uh, Dale Davis says that she is an, an overly fertile, mouthy thorn in the flesh. Um, and if you've read the story a little bit longer, you'll understand what he means by that. Um, so you have Hannah who couldn't, and you have Penina who was just like fertile, Okay, and, and, and a little later it says, in fact, it's verse four, she had sons and daughters. So we're just talking about someone who was, who was active. And you can just understand the tension that's there. But you're thinking to yourself, okay, wait a second. There's a crisis in Israel going on. We need a king. And this seems so mundane. I mean, it's a real problem. And, and, and please don't misunderstand me. When people are struggling to have children, that is a, that is a heartache. But that is a, a, a common um, household issue that it, in comparison to the crisis of that moment doesn't compare because there's a need for a king. And yet God is, is, is laying down a foundation. He's laying some things out for us to see that there is a seed being planted that is pregnant with sovereign power. And we're gonna begin to discover that as we read on in this story so, so bottom line, here's what's going on. These two verses are telling us that God is going to do something about this crisis of a king from an obscure man in an obscure place who is living a mundane life with a wife who cannot bear children and a wife who has plenty of them. And what we have in the, in the context of this, this despair, this human despair, is the interwoven and germinating of divine hope. Just beginning, and as we're going to see in the days ahead here, how God is at work unfolding his plan in this particular moment, in this particular need. 
You'll have to come back next week to hear that one. Now we want to jump ahead a little bit. So we kind of looked what led up to this. We're looking at the immediate crisis of the beginning of this book. Um, but we want to think now in a broader sense about the divine plan. What is God doing in the big picture? And I would like for us now to, to look at some passages of Scripture together um, to kind of paint that picture. 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you would please. And this is really, um, as I was studying through 1 Samuel, this actually to me was, was really helpful in understanding the, 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 the picture of what, what God is getting at here in this story, okay? 1 Samuel 8, 5 through 7. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge. So this is the people speaking to um, Samuel. But now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when the Lord said, Give us a king to or so when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, now get this, but they have rejected me from being what? King over them. So we're talking about Abraham. We're talking about Moses. We're talking about Joshua. We're talking about the judges. Who was their king? Who is their king? This, this little verse tells us that God was functioning in that capacity of king. It was a theocracy where he determined what was to take place and what the parameters were and what the rules were, you might say. And, and the people lived under that theocracy where God was king. So we've got to recognize that even God is saying this about himself. Now I want us to go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. I'm just trying to, again, paint a picture here to help us understand how these characters are coming to be. Deuteronomy 17, and we'll begin at verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 14. We'll pick it up here. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among you brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a, a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now, it's, it's what's key here is that God is saying, listen, when you go in and you actually have the land, this is before they're going into it, he's saying, you can choose a king, but you have to choose the king that I choose for you. Not the one that you want, but you're going to choose the king that I want. So, we begin with God being the king. We have this promise that God is going to provide them with his chosen king. Okay? And so these kind of are, are backdrops now to 1 Samuel. And then as we get into 1 Samuel, we're going to be introduced to um, the man Samuel himself. Um, he would follow Eli as judge, um, as prophet, as priest over Israel. He would seek to lead the nation in righteousness, but because of the wickedness even of his sons, um, his family is also unfit to lead Israel. In his later years, however, the Israelites come to him, the people come to him, 
and they want a change in their government. They want a king because all the other nations around them have a king. But they want a king for completely different reasons than God wants them to have a king. And they want a king that is fashioned according to their thinking and reflects what's happening in the nations around them. And so they end up choosing Saul as their king. And so the first seven, eight chapters are talking about Samuel and his preparation, and then we have Saul ultimately becoming um, king, and then we have this, the, the, the life and, and affairs of Saul and, and, and uh, ultimately his interaction with his son, with a man by the name of David. And David is a faithful servant of God during this time, and yet Saul was the people's king, but David, as you know, was God's chosen king, okay? Now, let me remind you of what we read in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's actually something purposeful about the book of Joshua. Um, in the, the Hebrew, um, uh, I think it's the, the Talmud or whatever, the book of Joshua um, ends, and then the first Samuel begins. So it really is the last it's the last verse before 1 Samuel. So you're kind of left with this, wow, what's gonna happen, okay? But there's another story that is nestled in this time period that begins to shed light of a greater divine purpose going on. So now I want you to turn to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth. And we'll begin at verse one, chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem of Judea, which, by the way, is in what region? Ephrata, okay, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So he left then that area and went into the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two uh, Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women uh, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, imagine going on a journey with your husband. Your husband dies. Your sons, they get married. They marry people that are Moabites. They die. So the mom's left and the daughters-in-law are left. It's quite a picture of despair, isn't it? It's quite a picture of hopelessness. Um, it's a different picture than the picture of Hannah, which we can look at next week, but it's still a picture of despair and hopelessness, and yet, in the midst of all that, God allows us to walk through the story of, 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 of uh, Ruth clinging to Naomi, um, Orpah leaving, 
and this journey now of, of Naomi and Ruth going back to Bethlehem and, and reestablishing themselves in that community but without any rights. And finally, there is a, a wonderful man by the name of Boaz who becomes this kinsman redeemer, um, this, this, this rich um, bachelor who comes and redeems the land through his marriage to Ruth and restores them back to their place. It's just a wonderful story. Now I want you to go to chapter four and I want you to pick it up at verse 13 and we're just gonna see how this unfolds and how this connects now to the story even of 1 Samuel. So Boaz took Ruth, beginning at verse 13, and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I just keep reading. Now these are the generations, this is summary. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So you have these two books that are ending with this, this kind of one discouraging ending in, in, in Judges, and you have Ruth now that ends with this hopeful ending but they're all, they're all driving us forward into this book of 1 Samuel to answer questions. So when David comes on the scene, it is by no means a surprise. God has been working in obscure ways, out of despair, out of hopelessness, to accomplish his purpose of redemption. So David would ultimately be, be as the chosen king of Israel, he would be um, what I am calling the human benchmark for all kings to follow. So all the subsequent kings would be compared to David and his reign. And here is just one example from the book of 1 Kings where God is speaking to Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah. You can just listen, 1 Kings eleven thirty eight. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. See, Israel becomes this, this benchmark king. He wasn't perfect. He's a man after God's own heart that was frail and sinful. And we see that in the story laid out. And that's gonna be part of the fun of the journey. But at the same time, we see that God was at work and he was at work because there is a greater David yet to come. And he ultimately will be not just simply the chosen king, but he will be the Messiah king and his name is Jesus. So ultimately when you say, who is your king? We know that the answer to that question is Jesus. 
But we also have to understand that there were kings in the Old Testament that were there to foreshadow and to prepare us for the actual coming king whose name is Jesus. Now turn to the book of Matthew, and I just want to see this rooted in Scripture so you can see the connection and how beautiful and important this is. The book of Matthew is written to Jews, and so what Matthew is saying here is I want to connect Jesus to our Old Testament history. And notice what he says beginning at verse 3. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What's going on here? Matthew's laying down the lineage of this one who would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So this, this book of 1 Samuel is this wonderful book of God establishing his rightful king in Israel. It's a story about people looking for a king. And there's a lot of things for us to learn. And so this morning, as we just bring things to, to a close, I've got 15 minutes or so um, to just kind of lay down some challenges and to walk you through some other steps here as we prepare. But I want to begin by us thinking about this whole subject of leadership. Um, We all um, have a leader. We all do. You have someone you choose to follow. In human terms, um, you, you make those choices, you know, every day. It's who you're listening to on the radio. That's who you're allowing to fashion and shape your thinking. But I think you would agree with me that in our country, um, there is a crisis in leadership. Now, the point here is not necessarily to make a political statement, but there is a crisis in leadership when a leader of our country cannot honestly tell us about another religious organization's intent and beliefs. There's a crisis in leadership going on there. There's a crisis in leadership with just with, with honesty going on in places of leadership. And there's a crisis of leadership not only in the arena of politics, but there's also a crisis of leadership in the context of the church. All right? when, when pastors are, are just bringing in and, and, and allowing themselves just to, to act and behave and to think like the world and um, not thinking too much of that and wanting to say it's okay to continue on in ministry when those things are happening. And friends, there are churches across this country that have pastors that see no problem with maybe homosexuality or abortion or things like that. And the, the, the leadership isn't saying what the word of God is saying. They're banning the word of God. They're not saying, thus says the Lord. There's a crisis there. But there's also a crisis in our homes where there are husbands and fathers that need to be leaders, but they shirk that responsibility of leadership. And they're actually maybe functioning based on a different form of structure of what leadership should look like, not realizing that, uh, or maybe rebelling against what God says needs to take place in the home. So this this morning, I want us to think about leadership and just understand that, that God gives grace for leadership. You and I, are all called to lead. We all influence someone. How are we going to do that? Are you going to do it in your own strength? Are you just going to pick up a book and say, ah, this is going to be the answer? 
Um, I don't think God picked up Boaz or picked up Elkanah because he was studied and ready and prepared to be used and to be the source of God's unfolding of a leader. Those things may be helpful, but what God is looking for are people who want to do what God wants to do, who recognize God for who he is and are willing to humble and submit themselves under his leadership. Because when it comes down to it, he's still king. And any human king that we have is an under king. And we are in positions of leadership. We are under his leadership so that we can lead. And so we need grace. Who are your leaders? We follow leaders. We choose to follow leaders. What kind of leaders should we follow? Those are all important things to be considering. The question now is how will you lead? Because you are leading. But I also want us to think about grace for obscurity. (laughs) Most of us don't, um, on, on a grand scale of things, don't think too highly of ourselves. We're not expecting to be the headlines in USA Today. We're not expecting ourselves to be some, this mighty person that God is going to shake this world with. Um, and yet, yesterday I, I went to a, a breakfast with the Slavic Gospel Association. I've been to Russia a number of times through them. And um, the man that started that mission um, was a man by the name of Peter Nenyeka who came to the United States by himself, started working, I think it was in Chicago, um, and tried to send money home but couldn't. And while he was here, went to a English-speaking class, you know, ESL class at Moody Church. And there, through learning English, um, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Through that, he had such a heart for the people of Russia and, I would say, the Soviet Union, that he began this organization called Slavic Gospel Association. It was founded on prayer, and they would go to Russia, and they would have these meetings, and people were getting saved. And then the government didn't like that, so they banned him from coming to the country, and so he would go to any place where Russian-speaking people lived, and he would preach, and he would emphasize prayer, and, and so he would ask people to pray, and he would preach, and... Um, then he was banned from some of those places. And by, you know, by the end of his life, um, this is what I understand, is that the Russian government there said, um, said you know, we want to get rid of all Christianity in our, in our lands. And what, what he did through his organization is they set up these, um, these uh, uh, what are they called, these towers that projected the radio station. Um, so these radio towers all around Russia. And the Russian government tried to somehow interfere with them, but they couldn't, and so the gospel went forward through HC, uh, what's, it, what's it called, HC, what's the one in Ecuador, I've forgotten, HCJB, the, the radio ministry that's out there in, in, uh, in Ecuador. They partnered with them years ago, and they built these things, and so, the, so the, through radio, the word of God was going, going, going. Now, you just say, how in the world did you get to that place? Because God took a young man who was you know, working in some sweatshop when he came to the United States, providing money to send back to, and then he ends up showing up at, at Moody and learning English. And, and from all of that, that place of obscurity, God, through him, built this ministry that has affected and shaped the lives of thousands. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's, that's everyone's life, 
The point that I want us to emphasize here is this, is that we may feel pretty obscure, but that doesn't mean that God isn't working through us in the midst of our obscurity. And I think you would probably agree that we are living in a moral, um, corrupt, and decadent culture. But what we see here is that moral corruption and decadence meets God's sovereignty through obscurity. It is through the obscurity that God begins to work. How in the world are you gonna do this, God? And he's saying, just watch me. Just watch what I do. Because there is no place for Elkanah or Hannah or anyone else to stomp around saying, look at me. Look how strong I am. Look how powerful I am. Look at how mighty I am. No, powerless, empty, obscure. It is God who's powerful to accomplish his purposes through the mundane lives of his children. And get this, he's not done yet. He's not. And he's at work in your life. Oh, you may not be recorded in any Bible, but he is still at work through the mundane lives that we experience day after day. And so the message of 1 Samuel 1 and 2 is that God answers Israel's crisis and the crisis of the world in a way that is quiet, unassuming, and far from a very unexpected place. God is not looking for influential, powerful, and impressive people. He's looking for simple people who will do his will. And we need grace for that obscurity. But we also then, out of that, need grace for living. I mean, I just think about trying to live in that kind of culture with all the things that were going on and what wasn't taking place. And as we look around the world in which we live, I was talking to someone yesterday that was at that, that little gathering. They were like, you know, because we were talking about being in Michigan. They're like, you know, you know is, is, the, is the lifestyle in Michigan as crazy as it is out here? I mean, is the politics out there, is it, you know, is it, is it as bad there as it is here? And just think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff we could really get upset about or struggle with. But God gives us grace to live. And there was this couple, at least, who in the midst of that era where there was no king and people were doing what was right in their own eyes, that were still pursuing God. And we find that from the story as it unfolds. They were still going to the temple. They were still seeking to honor God. They were still wanting to do his will. And friends, don't give up. And don't give up when you look around and just things seem to get worse and worse and worse, especially those of us who are older and we think back a little bit. It's like, man, things were, you know, and we know that things were always sinful, but it just seems like it's so much more in your face today than it used to be. And that can be really discouraging, but don't give up because God has called you for this time and he is at work in you through this time. So God is still in the business of working through his faithful followers even when it seems hopeless. Now, as we finish up, I want you to look at those 10 principles for interpreting Old Testament narrative. My, my goal this morning was not only to set up for Samuel, but was also to kind of give you some tools to begin to think about how you approach reading um, a passage like this. And so um, I want to encourage you to just to follow. I'm going to just touch on these. I'll be real brief, but I want you to ponder them and think through them as you read our narrative usually does not directly teach a doctrine, but rather illustrates a doctrine or doctrines taught propositionally elsewhere. Okay? 
Secondly, a narrative records simply what happened, not necessarily what should have happened or what should happen every time. Put a big star next to that. Because one of the things that you know, you're gonna do here is, well, you know, may, maybe, maybe you're a mom and maybe you're struggling to have children. And you're gonna, you're gonna kind of land in this passage, you're gonna look at Hannah and you're gonna say, Hannah, she's my hero, she prayed and, and God provided a child. Um, following Hannah's pattern doesn't guarantee that God's gonna provide you a child. It did in Hannah's case, okay? So we, we often do this, we'll see a pattern, we'll see a method, we'll see what they're doing, and you know, okay, you know, Hannah wrote, a, she, she wrote out a prayer, or maybe she sang a song, whatever it might be, I'm gonna do the same thing. That is not what God is wanting us to, wanting us to do as we come to this passage, and I have great compassion for, for where you are and where you're struggling, but I wanna be concerned that you're not trying to simply uh, glean something from a passage like this that isn't what God intended. He has a purpose in his unfolding plan to work through, and we'll talk about this more next week, um, work through barrenness as a means of showing his glory. How many times God has, has allowed a person who has purposely been barren to, to then conceive. And, and he's worked his plan mightily and wonderfully through that circumstance. And yet, um, that is not true for everyone, okay? So number two is really important. We're not always told, number three, at the end of the narrative, what was good and bad. Narratives invite reflection, thoughtful pondering based on other teachings. So oftentimes you have to ask yourself, is the, is the author giving us any clues about what's going on here in some of his comments? And oftentimes an author will do that. He'll tell the story and then there'll be a little kind of, a little statement, maybe a summary statement that will help us to, to, to glean some understanding of what he, what's happening here. Number four, the things that happen in narrative are not necessarily positive examples for us, even if the person is a positive figure by and large. All right? So, I mean, when, you know, the good example, of course, is David, right? He was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a sinful man, and very sinful. And so there are parts of David's character that you say, wow, I want to emulate that. There are parts of David's character you're like, what's up with that? All right? And so he's not always going to be a good character, all right? And so he's not always necessarily a, a type of this, this wonderful, perfect Christ. Number five, most people are far from perfection, so are their actions. I, I'm not talking about you at all, of course, right? Um, number six, all narratives are incomplete and selective in detail. Sometimes what is left out is as important as what is included. What is important is that we know everything um, the inspired author intended us to know. So again, remember the author is selecting the information that's gonna be helpful to accomplish his purposes and God is, is breathing out and inspiring all of that to be true. Number seven, a narrative is not written to answer all our theological questions and they are misinterpreted if we come with our questions rather than the questions the narrator wants to answer. So there's some things that happen in a story that are not really the purpose of the author's intent. And so you're kind of left wondering, why is that there? And if we begin to ask ourselves questions that the author was never trying to resolve, we may come to wrong conclusions. So we gotta be careful about that. All right? God is the real good character, 
and the hero of all biblical narrative. He is the only one always worthy of emulation. That doesn't mean that other characters aren't worthy of, of emulation or at least acknowledging or even wanting to follow, but ultimately it is God that is your hero. He is the one um, that we are drawing our attention to through every section or every narrative portion. Number nine, the historical narratives are always to be interpreted by the teaching material. In other words, by, by the other, other things that are said in the context, the internal context of the word of God. Number 10, always remember that Jesus told us the story is about him. You haven't finished understanding the narrative uh, as a Christian until you see how it helps you to understand and to know and to love him. And friends, that's not necessarily easy. And so part of my job as pastor as we walk through this is to help you connect some of those dots. Part of this morning was to say, here's the, here's the history of Israel, but that history of Israel ends up where? It ends up at Jesus, who is the Messiah King, right? I just said it ended at David. That wouldn't be sufficient. It would be helpful, but it wouldn't be sufficient because we need to see that God has had this plan all along to take us to a place we would see his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just arrive on the scene out of nowhere. He arrived on the scene because God had planned it from the beginning and was unfolding that plan through the years. Through all of the mess that we're gonna study, God was still at work accomplishing his purposes. Lord, help us now as we take time to step back and to think about what you're doing through this wonderful book of 1 Samuel. Lord, I pray that I as pastor teacher would be humble before you, Lord, that you would allow me to to lead and guide um, your flock here at Gateway uh, to, to grasp and, un- and to understand your purposes and your plan and, and uh, Lord, what you desire to teach them. Help us to be mindful of the things that we have looked at this morning. And Lord, may they be a, a solid foundation for us as we, as we read through and study this book together. Um, Lord, I, I just ask that as we consider our cir- circumstances, Lord, we, we just might feel that our lives are so mundane that um, it's really hard to think how you're going to work through them, how you're going to impact the world. And yet, Lord, uh, the evidence is there over and over again that that is exactly the place, Lord, where you work. And uh, Lord, help us to be thankful for the fact that um, we, we live in the mundane and that you will be glorified in the midst of that and to be faithful to, in, the, in the little things and, and to trust you, Lord, even with leading our families for your glory and, and Lord, that being a means by which you will build your kingdom. And Thank you, Lord, for the, the privilege of leadership. And Lord, although we may be in a circumstance where there's a crisis in leadership, Lord, where we have responsibility, may we be faithful to be the kind of leaders you want us to be, not leaders that are fashioned and shaped by human thinking or human agendas, but Lord, leaders that are fashioned by your word and your truth. And Lord, that is... Uh, so true for the church and it's so true also Lord for our homes and for our marriages and Lord help us to be those kinds of people and to learn Lord to do that as we open up this book and Lord help us to rest on your grace as we live our lives Lord we need you and Lord um, we ask now for your direction for your counsel and for your guidance and uh, we praise you in your precious holy name Amen